0: It's the Seminary of Hard Knocks podcast, a show all about church communications and digital ministry. Come hang out with us. Well, hey, Megan, uh, glad to be with you again today. Um, for this show, we have a little bit of, a, of an interesting topic.
1: You know, a unique,
0: unique topic. Yeah, you know, we've talked about it before, and it and this this episode kind of will divulge away from necessarily just communications and marketing a little bit, um, but it has implications for that. Does that make sense?
1: Sure. Yeah, it's going to affect the way that we communicate and talk, and
2: yeah. It, yeah, it, I guess in a relationship it, with each other. It's about a
0: different type of communication, I should say. It, it's about communicating with one another, much not necessarily like how to do social media and and things like that. We always we always talk about today. Today I have my friend Jason Caston on the show, and Jason is an African American guy. He's live. He's from Chicago. Lives here nearby. Actually, I've had tacos with him several times. We'll talk about that. Um, just become a really good friend, and over the last year of twenty twenty, I mean part of part of what i wanted to do was i wanted to reach out to more people of color and just befriend them because i feel like my experience is really limited when it comes to understanding what they're going through right now and um <clears throat> and trying to understand you know there is a lot of division right now and there's a lot of issues and and part of what's really been difficult for for me is seeing the division that's in the church because of it and so I brought Jason on because there's there's a level, high level of trust there between us to to really openly discuss some things that are going to be possibly a little controversial for some people. And um, you know, we we've seen the division, we've seen the issues, right? I mean, it's it's everywhere. Yeah.
1: I keep coming back to uh, Ephesians talking about unity and how we need to mm-hmm. fight for unity in one another, yes, for one another, with one another, and above all, to be people of peace. Yeah. And I think part of that involves being willing to step into each other's shoes Mm -hmm. and being willing to have tough conversations, even when we disagree with each other and even end disagreement, still honoring one another.
0: Yeah. I think that's all very important. Absolutely. And, and we have to understand too, that right now there's a lot of hurt in, in people you know, from things that have gone on and happened and how, and how the church has responded and, uh, or people in their lives who are Christians have responded. And it's hard to want that sometimes, you know, that I want to unify some people who are feeling right now, like, no, I, I don't, I really don't. I just want to be rid of you or, or not part of you. Um, I read this article, uh, it was shared somewhere on Twitter, I think. And, uh, it was a, it was a report on like from all over the world of how you know political racial division things that are happening in in the world just not even affecting this family is dividing families you know Mm -hmm. like like it's dividing up like like racial issues things that are happening in the world right now are causing completely white families to split and have problems and tension and you know that's That's, that's significant. And so we talk a little bit about that in the show. We talk a little bit about the, um, especially near the end, and it's a little bit longer episode, but near the end, uh, we talk a lot about the effect that it's had on how um, division in the church, but also how people who are not believers might be viewing the church and how the, the, the tension between white believers and people of color who are believers is, is, um, how do we get, how do we start repairing some of that or, uh, reaching out to each other? So it, it, there'll be times in this, in this episode where it feels like, wow, a little uncomfy. Yeah, uncomfortable and man, there may not be hope, but there is. And, you know, I encourage people to get all the way through it before making that judgment, but, um, it is a long listen. So if you're in a long commute or you've got a couple of chores around the house, this is a good one. But, um, Anyway,
1: you can come mow mow my yard, do my (laughs) dishes, and I got some laundry to do while you listen. Yeah,
0: anybody needs to some some things to do while they listen. I got them. Megan's got plenty (laughs) for you to do,
1: and then we can sit down, share a cup of coffee, and chat about it. Yeah, in my backyard, six feet apart.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it's 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 kind of like, in a weird way, this whole thing for introverts has been like, I don't really. I'm not really affected too I'm much fine. by the social distancing and things. It's kind of how I normally like it.
1: And us extroverts are like mascara yeah. of running down my face every day. <laughs> Where are the people? Yeah. I mean, literally, I'm waving at strangers in cars because, like, I just I <laughs> need <laughs> to make eye contact with someone. Like, please make eye contact with me. Please acknowledge my existence. <laughs>
0: yeah. And, and of course, I don't mean to to make it light of of you know. There's some bad things attached to this whole thing, of course, but um, some really tragic things, but for the most part, you know, this conversation I think is a healing one. It's a healthy one. Um, it's a, it's a good start. So no matter who you voted for or what your views are on, on the issues of the day, um, I hope that people will listen to this and really just try to understand, not, not listen to respond, but listen to understand. And I think that's the beginning of empathy, which is needed today and to really unite and do anything uh, if we're ever even going to do that. So, um, so with that, hopefully you enjoy this conversation it's a little spicy in places. You, you'll enjoy that part. But, um, this is my friend, Jason Kasten, who is a communications expert. He's been in some big places. He, uh, he's worked for at and I don't even think I mentioned that one in communications, but, um, gosh, Daystar, TD Jakes. He's been kind of, He's done some, he's done some, some high profile jobs in the communication space. So, uh, I hope you guys enjoy this conversation. So here's me and Jason, uh, talking about life. Here it is. Hey everybody. My guest today is Jason Kasten, and I am thrilled to have this guy on the show. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. Uh, Jason's the former digital service specialist for TD Jakes Ministries, former digital media director at Daystar, author of the iChurch Method, which is available on Amazon right now. We'll link to that in the show notes and the CEO of, and founder of Composio, which is an innovative writing program designed to make self-publishing easy. Jason's become a good friend of mine. We've enjoyed many tacos together because we live nearby. Uh, so it's awesome to have Jason Caston on the show. Welcome buddy. How How are you?
3: I'm glad to be here man i appreciate it we finally was able to do this
0: yeah me too and congratulations this past weekend you got married
3: <laughs> I, did, <laughs> I did i did i appreciate that definitely uh tied the knot and um you know very happy
0: yeah it's awesome um and we've talked you know over over lunch a few times about a whole bunch of things going on in the world and you know mm-hmm. as well as personal lives and so it's been kind of cool to kind of be, come into your story here, right? As you're, you're starting a new life with your wife and, um, you know, you got some really cool business things going on. So, you yeah. know, uh, in all that, that's good in a year of 2020, which kind of sucks for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> there are good things happening this year. I just kind of want to point that out that that the good things aren't taking place in 2020. True, true. Um, so, um, I just want to get into you know some of this. We''ve we've, just, we've discussed the, the racial divides and things that are happening in our country and it's really affecting the church and it's in my, my realm of communications, it's made it very difficult on pastors and communicators to know how to navigate some of these things with their congregation as the congregation becomes really, really divided. And so Mm -hmm. you and I have had some good conversations about this and I want to share some of that today and, you know, just start off with, you know, it's been a tough year for people of color in particular, um, going through a lot of, uh, national crisis and a lot of nationally, um, what's the word, um, very public kind of, um, stress and struggle this year. Um, there've been protests, there've been, you know, demonstrations, there's been incident after incident that, that the people that, that the black community, especially, um, has, has really had to deal with. So, um, I guess for right now, I'm just saying, how are you doing, man? How are things?
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing good. And it's, it's, uh, I mean, the things that you named have uh, been going on in 2020, uh-huh. The interesting thing that me and you have talked about that uh, I was able to kind of inform you of was, for people who've grown up in uh, black communities, um, and I went to you know predominantly black high school, I mean, my community was ninety eight percent black growing up. A lot of things we're seeing today we saw before, mm-hmm. so it's just that they're being filmed now. Yeah, The reason we're seeing a lot of, uh, of outrage and uh protests is um white people are getting mad so when you have a community where we're saying hey uh police brutality uh has been happening in the black community well the the community has known has been known that for years now you're recording it and you're seeing uh white people say hey wait wait a minute this is not the america that we've known and so you jump all the way back to we could say Mike Brown in, uh, in uh, Missouri, or we go back to um, Trayvon Martin.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: When those things started to occur and uh, you started to see the justice system more uh, fail uh, the black community and fail communities of color, uh, it was more blatant than the, uh, and it, it was more blatant now in what we thought was post-racial America. Because if we saw it back in, you know, the 60s and 50s for Jim Crow era, they'd be like, oh, that's just how they were back then.
0: Yeah, haven't haven't we come so far? far.
3: Exactly, exactly. And so, but the the interesting thing about it was post-racial America was a middle-class dream for, the uh, I would call it the white moderate, as uh, mm-hmm. Martin Luther King would put it. The you know the person who just wanted things to just be normal mm-hmm. and didn't want to uh, uh, ruffle feathers and didn't want America to basically not live up to this dream that it is that it's it's portrayed to be, which it's yeah. not. And so now you take all of that stuff that we saw with it going on in in, in uh, the black community and this racial tensions, you add in a pandemic which disproportionately affects communities of color. Um you add in a fierce political divide, a huge um uh, church divide, and you add in all these different factors that are that's making America's dream become a nightmare for not just communities of color but for the average white person, and now you're you're basically pulling back. Uh, the veil on what America, what America was portraying itself to be, and we're seeing that it really was not. And so you can't heal and fix old racial segregation um, wounds from the past, and they've never been addressed. They were just like, yeah, we've kind of fixed that with the Civil Rights Act and throw it under the rug, but you prop it up with other systemic racial systems. It's like, that's not how it's gonna work.
0: Yeah. And, and, and there's a lot there I want to unpack in, as, Mm -hmm. as we go through this conversation a little bit at a time, because, you know, when you hear everything you just said, it's either you, you almost like totally agree or you totally disagree, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and that's been the reaction. And that just kind of speaks to, you know, in a communication world, we understand just how much the, um, uh, the algorithms of social media affect us how much the mm-hmm. way media portrays stories affects us um you know the way that you know even pastors speak about ideas and and issues whether that's from the pulpit or from their blog or from their social media accounts themselves or just in person mm-hmm. you know or it's kind of like what you get what you tolerate in some of those areas and you know what i think you're you're hitting an interesting point because i myself would consider myself a white moderate that you're, that you're describing. And I'm a de- I definitely grew up in that, you know, middle-class mm-hmm. uh, but I was, I was in deep East Texas, man. And, and what I'm realizing now <laughs> um, is that when you get out into the rural areas, and I don't mean to slam the rural people who live in those areas, but um, in my experience uh, out there, the, the de- it's not like there weren't, you know, different races around me. You know what I'm saying? It's like mm-hmm. they, we were just very segregated still in how we mm-hmm. operated in regular life. It wasn't mandated by the by the government. Like uh, we're free to do whatever, but we chose those things. Like we went to church with white people. Uh, we tried mm-hmm. to go. You know, white people typically would would send kids to school where there's white people. Um, you know, and my that was my experience. You know, and you know, being I remember being warned about the dangers of being around black people by family members. And it was just that kind of thing. You know, like if you see a group of black guys walking down in the mall, you know, back when there were malls (laughs) and, you know, you they used to go hang out the mall. It was like, that was cause for concern. Watch your wallet, you know, that kind of thing. And it's just that type of, of racism is just there and latent. Um, and then as you, as you grow up, you realize just what was around you as you become, as you begin to talk to people like you and I, um, more and more, you realize how some, so much of that was based on something that was not real, not not true about each other. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, I think that goes yeah, both yeah. ways, you know, of course, but you know, I think in this situation, in this particular instance of the church, um, which is what I really want to get to today, here at the end. But um, it's caused a division in our church that has been laid bare because, like you said, laying over pandemic, laying over economic crisis, laying over all these mm-hmm. things in the church. And now it's like we're staring at our screens all day and all we see are the things that you've seen for a while.
2: Mm-hmm. And, you know, because yeah, we're videoing
0: true. it, and it's like, what the heck is happening? I didn't think this was a big deal. You know, like I didn't this isn't a problem. We did away with this. Martin Luther Mm -hmm. King, you know, it's like, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? It's like, that's, that's kind of how I was conditioned to, to think about that. Um, and so, uh, let's, let's, let's get into some of this. Um, it brings up a point that I heard recently, and I want to ask you about this as, as, as a black man in America, you grew up hearing about racism from the pulpit. Did you not?
3: Yes, absolutely.
0: Yeah. See, that's different for white people. So, explain to me, what kind of stuff did you hear from the pulpit growing up about racism, how to live? I mean, just what was that? What was that experience like?
3: It was. It wasn't preached in terms of like um, the activism type of racism, or um, it wasn't trying to make us out to be activists or black nationalists, or hey, we're preaching the Black Panther Party. From the pulpit. Mm -hmm. What it was made out to be was in order to navigate American society or make your way, you had to be aware that there were things in place that were uh, systemically would hold you down, systemically would affect you. So you had to be two or three times better in certain areas than, say, someone who was white. That was just how it was. That's just how. That's just what America was. So L- if like I what? came into a room like, like I was what? used to,
0: like what uh, kind of examples would you give for that? Like what do you mean by that?
3: Oh, oh, absolutely. Let me give you an example. So when if um, and this is this is a pastor talking about how to be better. We get the motivational part about you know um, you know go be all you could be and and and, and um, you know if if God's will for your life to be successful, then no one can help you know get in front of that. But From a actual tangible application perspective, if you walked in a room and the majority of uh, Black people who either worked in the corporate environment or any type of work environment usually come in a room and they are one of the few Black people that are in the room. I've been in rooms where I've been the only Black person. Mm -hmm. So you realize that you have to do a couple of things when you walk in that room. You're taught to, one, code switch which is go from talking how you would talk if you were in your own neighborhood or stuff like that to how you talk in a corporate environment. Mm -hmm. And then two, um, you're taught that you have to come in there and be two, three, four times better than the average white person in there in order to be on the level of uh, everybody in there. And so it's like you're almost having to prove that you're in there because of merit and not because of affirmative action, yeah. because uh, somebody wanted to, you know, uh, hit you with um, what was that movie? Uh, I'm gonna say it's The Blind Side or something. But like they're mm-hmm. they're bringing you in there because you're the, you know, some white saviors bringing you in there the, the as, as a case. token black guy, stuff yeah. like that. So that type of stuff was talked about growing up, and so you heard that from the pastor in the pulpit in terms of how to be better. Because again, like you were saying before. I went to all black church growing up. Now I didn't stay in church my entire life growing up. I went in and out of church until I got older and grown and I was more um, consistent with church. But when I was in church, you know, it was all black church. It was all, it was such a significant experience and it was commonplace to say, Sunday is the most segregated day in the United States but it was said as a joke Mm -hmm. back then and then, even with me and you talking about it over our, our tacos, we realized that the impact of that now is what a joke then has led to a serious and huge <laughs> divided yeah. impact now.
0: Yeah. It's almost like we we knew it existed, but we kind of winked at it so we didn't have to talk about it.
3: Um, there you go. Yeah. It, it, there you go. It
0: was, it's, that's the way I've always felt about it. It's kind of like, and I, and I'll tell you this when you, how do you know you have racist friends is that when they start to tell you a joke, that's racist, they lower their voice, you know, like they, like, Hey, hey, let me tell you this joke. Guess what? You know, like, Nope, Nope. I don't want to hear it. You know, it's like that entertaining that and allowing that, um, is what perpetuated the segregation of Sunday morning. I think it's it's not, not particularly that instance, but that type of attitude towards Mm -hmm. racism. And I think that you're right. It's, Because I'll tell you, growing up in in my church, here's what we discussed about racism. Nothing. Just absolutely nothing. I mean, we didn't point it out Uh in the Bible when we saw it. You know, the only racist story I remember ever hearing was the one of the Good Samaritan. And I did not hear how much the Jews hated the Samaritans until I was in high school. Um, Because that's a deeper level of that story. You know, where they're, you know, and maybe it might've even been college. Honestly, it might've been college before I heard about that. Um, Because other than that, it was just about how we should love our neighbors. And Mm -hmm. through that whole thing, it's like, you never know that people of color are going through that because I'm not going through that. I don't worry Mm -hmm. about people walking, but if I'm laying in a ditch and I'm beat up, obviously somebody's going to stop, right? Obviously. You know, that's me not understanding that there could be two people to walk by and do nothing, you know, and, and I'm sure that that would happen. You know, there would be people to walk by, but not because of who I was, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Not because I don't want to touch that white guy. I would have never thought of that. Um, you know, for me, understanding why in that story, a, a, a priest and a Levite who I know now to be very religious leaders and kind of what they did in the Jewish temple. And they're not going to reach out to this person because of their religious whatever, you know, their
2: mm-hmm.
0: cleanliness laws. And so over a legalistic issue, they're not going to help their fellow man. And I think we still see that a lot. We, and yeah. and here's, here's how it plays out to me. And I'm, I'm soapboxing here, but um, mm-hmm. here's how this plays out to me when Alton Sterling was murdered uh several years ago this is what kind of broke me is that you could watch for one you can watch that you know you, for mm-hmm. the first time you watch a man get shot and killed and that's jarring at the least but to see how many people and sadly in my experience what I what I observe mostly white people um tried to deflect from the fact that he was shot and killed and left his family because he might have had a gun or might have been a drug dealer. And it's like, if he had a gun and he was going for it, you might could make a story out of that. But the thing I heard most was he used to deal with a lot of drugs. I'm like, that's the definition of using a legalistic example to not help or care about someone because it, it allowed us to just kind of, almost in a way say, well, he, he kind of deserved it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And I was like, that's, that's wrong. You know, that attitude is wrong and it, and it bothered me. And I I think that's what set me down a path of going, okay, wait, there's, there's something here I don't understand. And so anyway, um, I think that yeah. when you, when you talk about it from the pulpit, like from the church, we never talked about it. And I, I was in a group meeting and I heard somebody a black woman. I don't know who she was. And she mentioned that. And I thought, and and this was this year, this year, I realized mm-hmm. this, um, like, wow, we hardly ever talked about racism unless something serious
2: happened.
3: Yeah. Yeah. That's the, the experience. Um, the interesting thing about now that we're seeing these conversations, uh, attempt to be had is that, because of the the filming of these things now we're watching um you're seeing uh white pastors struggle with what um first of all interpretation of the bible and how you should handle racism Mm -hmm. based on um what you you know what we certain people feel like how you should handle it based on how they see it in the bible and then you have uh, from your perspective, I kind of want to say legalistic, but like, yeah, you have to look at how it affects society-wise. If you decide to start talking about these things, mm-hmm. and will it split your congregation? Um, will you still have a job? You know, when you start talking about these things, and it's just like now, <clears throat> it's it's putting us on a path, in my opinion, where the toothpaste is is uh, is all out it's yeah. all out you can't put the toothpaste back into the bottom you can't you can't get it back in right like can't get it back in the tube it's a wrap for that so mm-hmm. now um where if we don't address it then um the divide is already there but now it's going to be like okay now that we are, are seriously considerably divided the uh church is smack dab in the middle of this and i know we're going to get into this even more it's like you cannot put your head in the sand. Game over for that. Mm-hmm. Game over for that. So somebody's, somebody's <laughs> theological beliefs, um, theological beliefs that they've had their entire lives, somebody's uh, view of America they've had their entire life, somebody's political beliefs they've had their entire life are about to be um, drastically and considerably, considerably exposed. Yes, And that's for it's going to happen for a lot of people. And that's going to be uh, an upsetting and um, hugely impactful thing, uh, you know, moving forward. Mm. So we're in for some interesting times.
0: Yeah. And, and you bring up the pastor and, you know, right now um, the pastors that I've talked to, I'm sure you have too, are, mm-hmm. are just exhausted and beat up for one. I mean, they mm-hmm. ju- they're just exhausted and beat up. They've never had to deal ch- do a church like this for because of the pandemic, and yep. then with the racial issues that are happening, they have to address, um, and then it being an election year with very polarizing candidates, so um, they're they're feeling it so so bad. Um, yeah. So part of me is like. You know, there's there's a big part of me that's like I have a a lot of empathy for for the men and women who put themselves in a church staff position and have to navigate this with people. Um Mm -hmm. at the same time, you take that job. I think I think honestly we take that job because I was in that job. Uh I took that job with a little bit of an understanding this wouldn't be too hard, you know, because of American Christianity. And so I'm thankful, I don't say thankful. I do not envy those still in that role because I'm no longer in that role uh, because of Mm -hmm. what they have to deal with now. It is so much harder than it was. And, you know, I know my expectations for it was this is my job. I get, you know, insurance benefits from it or it pays my bills um, and I have a thing I go and I do every day. I work in the office and I deal with people and it's generally pretty friendly. And right now it's not friendly at all. Uh, you know, there's, there's division and racism is one of those things that divides us. So with pastors, how do you feel about their ability right now to help us navigate those things? Like what do they need to be doing to help their congregations navigate this, specifically this issue of racism, but even more so just the division um, in our church? What, what are your thoughts
2: on that?
3: I think that there's, pastors have come into this position, unfortunately, ill-equipped. So, and by that, I mean, from a theological perspective, pastors have their view of, um, you know, of of biblical scripture. That's great. So they come in with that. Mm -hmm. From a historical perspective, and by that, I mean, the history of um, Christianity in America. If you're going to be teaching Christianity in America, then you need to know about the historical aspects of Christianity in America. I do not believe pastors have educated themselves in that particular area. From a and then tie that into racism in America from a historical perspective. The the information they've been given or uh, have either made available to themselves or have been given throughout their life experiences and studies has not been enough to deal with everything that's risen to the top right now.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Now that's two things. So the third thing, from a political perspective, politics and Christianity and the rise of Christian nationalism, they have not been uh, educated in that. To to go back to the stuff that, you know, even you educated me on, I think you were talking about was it the 70s or the 80s? When it really started to come together, I believe you're talking about. Are you
0: talking about departmentalizing the church and things like that, or
3: I'm talking about of... when 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 um, certain um, pastors uh, started to get affiliated in politics, oh, but yeah, not yeah. Billy Graham. But after that,
0: yeah, like the uh, what do they call them? The like the James Dobsons of the world, and um, you know the Charles Stanley. He was part of that, not as much, but like a um, Jerry Falwell, and they became you know affiliated and trying to get their, their churches to vote more conservatively. Um, right. You know, late seventies, and it probably happened a little more before that, but with Reagan, you really saw a, a big push for that, but that's, that's not really my area of expertise, but, um, that's, that's what, you know, the documentaries that I've seen and the studies that I've, I've done show that, you know, Christianity in the seventies and eighties started to kind of combine like like agendas a little bit well at least they saw that through the conservative movement um of politics they could push issues that were you know concerns of the church
3: um, right so you, then know, you that, got you have sense. so if you have uh the politics the um the history of american christianity the history of racism in america so those three things and i'm sure there's more but i'll just go with those three mm-hmm. The To educate yourself in those particular areas, to be able to speak to what's going on now is a massive, it's like a whole nother, you know, degree program, along with your theological yeah. training, to step into the pulpit, to lead people who, um, you know, you can't just say, hey, for all the problems you're dealing with, I need you to just pray on this. It's like, we need more. We Okay, pray is for you know, the spiritual aspect of it, but what about the application of it? I need tangible um, lessons and and guiding on how to deal with what's going on. And so for me, pastors that are dealing with this are not equipped from in those three areas that I just named. And so that to me is where they're they're walking in um, and basically, you know, with the stuff we're seeing and the pastors we're interacting with, for me, the white pastors I'm seeing and how they're interacting and what they're dealing with is significantly um, worse than the black pastors I'm seeing.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So, and because feel, of you, certain you, areas of black pastors, new when I come in there theologically, I also have to be able to speak to other areas of my congregation's lives um, yeah. and, and understand that when I start talking about social issues from the pulpit, especially my, my pastor friend, my best friend, who has a church that when he came in, I believe it was more, say, 60, 40, black and white. And it has leaned more towards um, black because he's actually spoken to certain social issues and political issues and stuff like that.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, you know, he he knew that he had to take a stand on it because you can't play the middle in uh, 2020 America. You just can't.
2: Yeah.
0: You so, feel like, yeah. you, you know, something interesting there. You feel like, that if you go into a black, a, a predominantly black church, kind mm-hmm. of anywhere in America, you're going to have a lot more alignment with those social mm-hmm. issues and historical issues. You think than uh, as long as well as maybe theological issues. You feel like you, you guys, basically, you could walk into any predominantly black church with a black pastor and feel like we all kind of understand the history and social constructs we've we've had to deal with.
3: Uh, oh yeah absolutely yeah. that's yeah. the thing that's that's one of the commonalities of the black experience in america mm-hmm. um at least in that particular aspect i mean you hear a lot of you know especially when you we're talking about these talking points we've heard blacks are not a monolith blacks are not a monolith
0: right, right. so
3: and so we, we and i understand that in terms of uh how they view uh you know we're not all voting democrat and stuff like that yes. i understand and using that as that talking point mm-hmm. however black experience in America has been very monolithic. so in terms of the stuff that we've had to deal with and the things we could relate to and the, the commonalities we've seen as far as you know uh, the, the injustices and the way we've looked at and had to turn a blind eye to a lot of the just that's just how it is in America type of thing. you understand that So yeah, I can walk in any to me, I can walk in any black church and talk about the black experience. And the majority of people in there will be like, yeah, yeah, we get it.
0: Yeah. Uh, see, to me, that's that's very unique because when I walk into a church that's predominantly white, I still feel like I really have, I have a few things that I know are going to happen, but I don't know how mm-hmm. this church is going to feel about some a lot of issues. I really mm-hmm. have to be there a while, um, you know, especially if it's a bigger church. You know, is it, is it going to, you can, you can ask those questions like what kind of music they're going to be, is it liturgical, is it modern, you know, or is it going to be, you know, a, a, a non-denominational, more charismatic church, or is it going to be more, you know, typical, um, Baptist type church or whatnot, you know, you can get those things, but when you walk in, it's like, what has been the experience of the people here? Is it Mm -hmm. similar to mine? Um, I go in immediately thinking we have nothing in common. And and, and I'm a pessimist in a lot of ways, but cynical, but, (laughs) but I go in with that general idea of like, I'm going to have to learn you and find my people where, you know, and and this is a communication issue, uh, where, where it kind of differs. I would say like at a church I worked at before, when we talked about small groups, we would use the phrase, find your people to talk about getting in community. I don't know that a phrase like that would, would really hit in a black church because you feel like maybe you've already found your people. You just need to know what small group to go to. Is that fair to say?
3: It's, it's fair in terms of, yeah, because, we, we, because of how the stuff we're taught from just a generational perspective, and I mean, passed down generation mm-hmm. to generation, we all have these shared experiences um, that are sometimes shared trauma yeah. that we're taught in how to navigate in America. And again, Case in point would be, I mean, you start talking about experiences with the police. That talk was not anything new when they're talking about, oh, my God, I can't believe Black people have to have the talk with their kids. We've been having the talk for years. It's just now in 20, I don't know, we'll say 2016, 2017, it came to light because certain things were recorded Mm -hmm. of of injustices and trauma. But we've shared trauma has been passed down through our generations. Uh, from the black experience in America for years. Yeah. So it's just now it's all coming to light. And it and it it's it's great to have these conversations because as I told you, I didn't think we'd have these conversations in my lifetime. I thought my kids would. Mm-hmm. I think it would happen in my lifetime, but I also appreciate the fact that um the waking up of the white moderate that um Dr. King was talking about in terms of um didn't want to re-educate themselves out of racial ignorance that is what i'm seeing is a change now and so that's where you're seeing um you know what we well what we thought uh whites as a whole would continue to go down this one path that's not the case
2: mm-hmm.
3: that's not the case it, yeah. it's a difference where i'm seeing we're seeing whites arguing with whites about racism yeah about um you know, the church experience and the church, uh, church politics church to be so aligned with one political party and, um, and, and, and so on and so forth. It's just, it, that to me is what's different.
0: Yeah. And and I'll give an example to that. I was in, um, I live near Denton, Texas. Denton is like a small version of Austin, Texas. Very, very liberal, very, you know, con- um, you know, weird little blue area inside of a big red state kind of deal. Mm. Um, And so we, but we love Denton. It's artsy, you know, it's college town and lots of great stuff. You go to the historic square. And so my uh, son and I went over there to check out uh, this incredible like secondhand bookstore called um, uh, it's like a half price books, but it's, it's called uh, recycled recycled books and uh so we were going over there to see you know whatever we want we were going over and we're walking around the square and all of a sudden up behind us we hear the shouting and we look and it's a black lives matter protest they're walking this this they're they're walking around they have flags they have signs and there's about 50 of them it's not not a real big one uh about six o'clock in the afternoon in the evening maybe a friday night and um we're we start walking around the square and they come up behind us and they're basically following us and they're yelling, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. And when I turn around, there is, they are solid white people in that group. There, there's no, really? there's no black people in that group. And they're out there protesting for Black Lives Matter. And I thought, this, this is unique. And at first it was like, you guys, not one of you has a black friend you could have had come along or anything like that, you know, like come on. But but at the same time, I'm like, it's kind of interesting that this group of white people got together to go protest on behalf of black people. Mm -hmm. That's different. And, you know, in the civil rights movement of the 60s, you saw white people in those marches. I mean, they were there. And yeah, there, there yeah. were, there were people who protested alongside, they walked the Selma bridge uh, and, and walked the, uh, the Edmund B- Pettus bridge uh, in Selma. And, you know, they, they were hurt just like everybody else, but to see, here is a solid Caucasian protest on behalf of black people. That's new.
3: Mm-hmm. That's new. It is. It is. I would have thought, I wouldn't have thought I would have seen it. Um, and. The thing is, yeah, you know, in the civil rights movement, allies were necessary and needed. Mm-hmm. So it even goes back to something that me and you talked about before, where you know certain white people um, didn't want to get involved in the movements because they uh, they were either told by black people, "Hey, this is not your thing. This is our thing," you mm-hmm. know. So you know, and it's like, no, this movement cannot happen without allies. It just yeah. cannot. From if we take away take away the emotion and the, you know, all the other stuff, the math, the numbers game. Yeah. It cannot happen without allies. Black people do not have the numbers to do anything in America and have, uh, that can significantly impact things uh, without allies. So yeah. even though they talk about, hey, black people voted here and here and changed the election, yes, they put things over the top, but if you just, if you just look at them as from numbers perspective, they cannot do it by themselves. We can't do it by ourselves. Not in this country,
0: right? And, and that's that's one of the things that I think we're seeing now. It is becoming more of an us movement than a mm-hmm. uh, black, white, Hispanic, whatever group. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because like you said, it's it's um, there. There are there are things that white people have that that uh, because we are white that black people mm-hmm. do not have. And you know, they in the in the media world now, we've coined a phrase that immediately seems to offend and divide. And that is the phrase of white privilege. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, trigger trigger it, word. It's a trigger. huge trigger. And you know, I hope that people stay with us, you know, to to talk about that because um you know, the immediate trigger is to go, well, I'm not privileged and dismiss everything that happens after. And mm-hmm. I think when you really stop and go, you know, what is white privilege? Exactly. That it's it's kind of like when they say defund the police, that's kind of mm-hmm. like a, an accurate term for what they want to do, but sounds like we want to get rid of police and that's dumb. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like yeah. nobody, nobody really wants that. So it's one of those things where uh, and I'm not supporting or, or any of that or outright, you know, just, I, I think there's a conversation for both those terms that, um, in this particular sense, white privilege that merits a conversation. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that when you discuss white privilege, one of my common rebuttals that I hear is that, um, I'm not privileged. I grew up poor. Mm -hmm. you know, from, from my white friends. And so that's not the same thing. It's like, I was telling you earlier, it's almost like, why are you assuming that the privilege has to do with economic status? I mean, that in itself is kind of assuming that black people are poor.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, it's kind of, and so, so for us to be equal, we have to be poor too. And that's, that's like, that's, that's a big assumption and, and weird. It's a weird assumption to me, but I got to be honest. Um, I, I want to hear your thoughts about this. But I, I saw mm-hmm. this this movie called "Dear White People" a long time ago, and that used to just make me mad.
3: Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, I saw the movie.
0: I'm like, <laughs> I, I haven't seen the movie. Um, it, it's it's just something that comes through my Netflix, you know, suggestions or whatnot, and I see that phrase, and the phrase made me mad because and 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 I and I honestly until I stopped and go why does that make me mad you can't really unravel your own uh, i I guess for better lack of a better word privilege your own your own bias um mm-hmm. in that and so explain why white privilege what white privilege really is and you know let's let's talk through that a little bit
3: oh yeah absolutely um i I've, the best way I can explain white privilege is it's, it really basically means because of your, you won't have to deal with certain difficulties because of the color of your skin. Yeah. And that's it. Now, you will have, you will have difficulties in life and your economic status could be, uh, you know, you grew up in a trailer park. It could be that you could have a low economic status if economic status is how you want to, you want to put your flag in the sand, that's fine. But the thing is because of your color of your skin, you won't have to deal with the systemic injustices that are in our American society. For example, you won't have to deal with people following you around the store um, thinking that because of their biases, you could be stealing. That is something that happens to uh, people yep. because of the color of their skin. Yeah. You won't have to deal with certain biases that are that um, the police have when they come to certain crime scenes <laughs> based on what they see. Mm-hmm. If they see, and we have seen video of this, if they see a um, white person with a weapon or in distress, um, or in in certain situations, they will look to de-escalate uh, before, um, if they come to a, a scene with a person of color, before they look to um, use lethal force. That is, and based on what I've learned from my friend, my uh, my friend who's in politics and has worked with the police, it, it does come down to bias training. Now, there are police who've walked into situations where. Uh, they've dealt with situations with people of color that have been, you know, very unfortunate situations. so they do have to be more on guard. But a white person with a gun and a black person with a gun is, is um, um, are just bad both bad situations. Yeah, However, unarmed white people being um, or armed white people being de- have, having a situation where it's de-escalated and taken to jail, which we've seen on video is frustrating when you compare that to unarmed black men who have been gunned down yeah. because police have come with street justice. So therefore, when we look at white privilege, it's just that white, your white skin in this American society is not something that uh, will make you uh, be um, considered uh, more, um, some more of a criminal, more of a threat, um you know won't be something that you have to deal with such stuff like redlining mm-hmm. which is uh you know and that comes down to the economic stuff and stuff like that it's just like you won't have to deal with certain systemic injustices just because you walk in a courtroom and have black skin yeah. you walk in a courtroom and have dark skin that you won't have to deal with that type of stuff it does not mean <laughs> when you're born with white skin you automatically have economic uh you know, success and life will be extremely easy for you. It will be easier than if you were born with brown skin or black skin in American society. And 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 that's all it is.
0: And I think too, your example of someone following you around a store thinking you're going to steal something Mm -hmm. because you're black. Um, I think that what I, what I hear back from that, from, from my white friends sometimes is that, well, if I'm acting shady, they might. If I'm acting shady, they might do that. And like, yeah, but one of the reasons you're acting shady is not that you're white. You know, it's like being, being black is part of the, this person seems shady column to that person. Mm -hmm. You know, being white is not part of this person seems shady column for that person. And that exactly. that's that's the difference. Lay out everything else exactly the same and yeah, you both look shady. But if you're doing none of those things in that column that looks shady in a store that will make someone think I'm gonna follow this person, they might steal something. If they're not doing any of those things, there's still one in the black column. There's still one
3: example. Let's give you an example. Um another example that I think will help some of the listeners. When we think of um when we look at, uh, I can take the gentleman um, who uh, was shooting, who shot the Black Lives Matter, um, who shot up that protest, but it was the kid who went up there with the AR-15. Oh,
0: Kyle Rittenhouse. Went to
3: Wisconsin, Kyle Rittenhouse. All right, <clears throat> so what, what we were taught, <clears throat> if you see, um, or how media influences our biases, when you see white people with AR-15s storm a government capital, They're considered patriots exercising their, um, uh, what is it, the Second Amendment Amendment rights. That's what they're considered doing. Now, historically, when you see Black people with AR-15s going towards the government or trying to protest the government, they're considered Black Panthers, Black nationalists, and they must be stopped. If you don't think that's the case, then research COINTELPRO. There was was programs set up to um, make sure that that did not occur. So Mm -hmm. when we talk about systemic stuff, um, systemic injustices in America, white privilege is you can storm the government with your buddies (laughs) with white skin and AR-15. Black people are not interested in storming the government with the AR-15s because we don't think we can and we don't think we'll make it out alive. Yeah. We think the response will be so drastic that the militia, and I mean U.S. militia, that will be called in to quell that uprising mm-hmm. of us trying to kidnap a governor would be that not only will they kill every black person there, but like... A block could be bombed. If you don't think that happened, look at Philadelphia in 1984. I forget the name of the uh, where the government bombed the block of the uh, black uh, nationalist. Yeah. But that stuff happened. So I'm not giving you what I think will happen. I'm giving you stuff that I say, this is what will occur. And here's an example in history where it's occurred to back up what I'm saying. Yeah. So that's what I'm talking about with, um, you know, white privilege and things that white people can do that black people look at on the news and be like wow that's crazy. Yeah. No, nah, we can't do that. I've,
0: I've seen a lot of uh <laughs> I've seen a lot of TikToks um where there's an and Instagram shots and Twitter feed and stuff too on social media where there's a video of a white guy um re- like pushing a cop or wrestling with a cop and you know they even have a weapon and they do something that's like aggressive and the cop mm-hmm. just kind of pushes them back and then the situation just dissolves and nothing mm-hmm. happens. And then it immediately cuts to a black man, you know, look, looking like, what the heck did I just see? Yeah. You know, like surprised. Exactly. And it takes me a second. Cause I'm like, what, what's this, what's he doing? Oh, it's different. You know, it's like they would have never gotten away with that. Um, exactly. you know, and I'm like, that's, I see so many of those. To me, it has to be, um, you have to take notice when so many people have a similar experience. Maybe there's a pattern. And for me, who loves patterns, I grew up on Nintendo games. That's the only way you can beat those Mm -hmm. games is through patterns. You memorize the pattern. And it's like, when you see these patterns, you kind of have to go, man, there's there's something here for us to acknowledge and look at. Before we just kind of dismiss it out of hand, Um, which brings it kind of back to the church situation. I think that there's been a definite response of the church to this racist movement, uh, to the racism in our country and the movement surrounding, acknowledging it. Um, Mm -hmm. How do you feel like the relationship between white and black Christians? has been affected by this.
3: Man, <clears throat> I'm glad you mentioned that because <clears throat> you take into account the divide we're seeing. And um hold on. Let me drink some water because my voice is going. <laughs> I'm sorry. Because that's my I'm I'm like, okay, we got to talk about this. This is what I've been looking forward to. There's a huge divide. And I think that, you know, for me, what I'm was talking to you, and I've talked to you, and I've talked to other friends we've had, and I'm like, it's getting to the point where I'm like, we cannot be worshiping the same guy. We cannot. We just cannot. And I've talked about American Christianity and westernized Christianity um, because of the church communication stuff I've done, um, and you've seen it as well. We've been able to interact with churches that have been from Nigeria, mm-hmm. from um, you know Ghana. And um, I've actually spoke and taught a church conference over in Dubai. So I've seen international um, worship experiences. Yeah. I got a buddy who runs a church that's over in Namibia. So <clears throat> specifically, those are countries in Africa. So I'm not going to say Africa as a whole. Africa is a huge freaking continent. Yeah. Talking about specific countries in Africa. That's a little pet peeve of mine. You just say Africa. I'm like, where in Africa? It's huge.
0: Well, so. that's like when I went to when I go overseas. Any time I've been, they ask me where I'm from, and my natural is like Texas. Like that's and that's the country uh, that I'm in. The country I'm from Texas. That's how we all are.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Everybody else would be
0: like America, and like now nah, I'm from Texas. That, that's in America.
3: <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. So, so <clears throat> what I'm seeing is this current tie of evangelicals to um this political this president because i won't even say um if i look specifically like a lot of my friends are independents mm-hmm. not democrats independent so based on yep. the issue we go back and forth between parties yeah. and i i don't like the two-party system as a whole but me and you already talked about that yeah but now this particular uh, this evangelical tie to this particular president and making him out to be this this super, um, you know, savior. And even to the point where it's like that Paula White display yeah. and her son of, you know, I'm calling angels from Africa and South America for this particular president. I'm like, well, who's angels? Because if, if it's any God that I'm worshiping and those angels are coming for him, like I want no part of that. I want no part of whatever version of Christianity that you have. Now, here's the funny thing about evangelicals and just when you watch westernized media, and westernized Christianity, they understand um, a bastardized version or extremist version of Islam. They understand that. Mm -hmm. You know, they'll talk about that. Oh, that's radicalized. They're radicalized. They're radicalized. But they can't understand a bastardized, radicalized version of Christianity. And I'm like, I'm telling you, for us who's watching this, <laughs> woo, that that yeah. when you look at the the way the language and the verbatim they use for a bastardized version of of uh, Islam and how it's tied into the government and how Sharia law affects the whole country, and I'm like, mm, from my perspective, that's looking real. What's like what's going on here? Mm-hmm. So for a bastardized version of Christianity. And so I hated the fact that it's gotten to the point where I'm like, this divide is so significant that I don't have a problem with, if we look at it from a political perspective, I don't have a problem with Republicans. I have a problem with Trumpism. Yeah. I have a problem with the worship of that particular person. That looks like a bastardized version of Christianity to me. <clears throat> um, and that looks like how I see uh, the, ba- the radicalized islam painted that's what it looks like to me so when i look at what's going on now and i keep hearing people saying that's not christianity it's not christianity i'm like those the the evangelicals think their version of christianity is the right version then there's the you know the um moderates version you know uh moderates and their their worship and how they view christianity and then you know and and i'm also seeing you know obviously there's the black church and how they view things i'm like there's there's a whole bunch of different perspectives and how people are viewing Christianity, and there's a lot of division within it. But there's only, for me, there's only one radical extreme version of Christianity that I'm looking at so tied to uh, Christian nationalism and even more so the particular president that we have right now that I'm like, we cannot be worshiping the same God. That's where it is. It's not, I'm not trying to reason with them. I'm not trying to, uh, you know, mend the bridges. I'm like, I'm not there yet uh, where I, that's what I want to do. I'm like, this, the, that version of Christianity, whatever that is, I cannot and want no parts of it. It reminds me of a radicalized version of Christianity that I was taught came from uh, slavery to where it's like, hey, you Black people sit in the back, in the gallows, that type of stuff. And that Christianity existed. So the church doesn't want to acknowledge that, you know, so that type of stuff, that's what it looks like to me. And I want no parts of that. I don't want that whole love your neighbor and stuff and all that, all that type of stuff that comes from a segregated version of Christianity or a version of Christianity that is, uh, is about uplifting white supremacy. I want no parts of it. Yeah. So.
0: And I think that's where you see a lot of this divide is that, you know, and, and people will, will defend that you know, and they have their opinions on, you know, well, that's not why I support the president that's not why I vote this way. And that's not why, I do. but there's a, there's a, my my parents always told me that you're guilty by association. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's something we've preached in church. And, you know, that I can, I can also attest to, you know, feeling very disheartened with where um our, how we're being viewed as a general church in America by people of color specifically. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: I think there are a lot of churches that are really trying to do big things in this area that are trying to mend these gaps that are trying to reach out and become more diverse and understand the black experience in America better. I think there are pastors leading that way, leading well. Um, I don't think you're going to find them on TV and they're not, you know, there's going to be, you're going to have a hard time finding them in the public eye because what's recognized right now is not that. Um, and it, it, it's kind of like your, your actions speak louder than words kind of thing. It's your, your, mm-hmm. your beliefs and how you, um, how you talk about this kind of stuff. Your words matter. And we're living in an era where um, there are many in power who would like for words to not matter. And words do matter. What you say and how you say it matters. Um, just like today, having this conversation, I know there are going to be people who are, who are mad that we had this conversation and what we say. Mm-hmm. That are going to say, I'm not listening to that Seth Muse anymore. I'm not listening to that Seminary mm-hmm. of Hard Knocks. He's gone liberal. And I'm an independent too. You know, I try to be a, a, a moderate. I try to look at both sides. It, it's like, I don't like either party either. Um, but at the same time, it's like, this is not a political podcast and racism is not a political issue. It's a yeah. human issue that in our scriptures, we're taught to love our neighbor. And you're right. It makes it really hard to want to be a part of church that says, love your neighbor, but not certain neighbors. And, and, and you can say love your neighbor, but how you live, love your, love your neighbor matters. And I think that because we can film everything, there's no more hiding on that issue for the church. Um, I, I honestly, in my opinion, the, the relationship between the white Christian evangelical and the black Christian evangelical is, is really damaged right now. Really, mm-hmm. really damaged and not beyond repair, but I no. think, I think definitely damaged to because of how we've reacted to some of these things that we've seen online. Um, So how do you feel like we can strengthen that and go forward? Like with those that are, is there just no way forward for those that are like, there's nothing wrong here um or or what i mean what's what's next what's next
3: so there's gonna have to be <clears throat> two things i think um and i'm gonna go i'm gonna i'm gonna stay optimistic uh because it's easy to say no there's no way certain people know we cannot we cannot move forward that's just not how it's gonna work mm-hmm. but um i'm not I'm, I'm i'm gonna stay optimistic and say this there's two things that i think need to occur one when you're looking at people who say there's nothing wrong here, if they're not able to acknowledge what's going on now, as well as what has occurred historically in this country, because there's, there's it's not just about now. Like historically, this country has, has shown a significant injustice bias towards people of color, including the church. The church played its part in that. Mm-hmm. So if we're not going to even acknowledge the fact that this, the church had a, a knife in the back of, of uh, you know, black people for years, then, sorry, don't say years, generations, then, and now it's, it's even more prevalent in what's going on and tied to the things that are going on now, then no, reconciliation cannot even begin. So I'm not gonna say, what can we do? We got to acknowledge that part to even start the reconciliation process. Can't take the knife halfway out and say, okay, we're doing better. Like we need the knife removed. Um, Secondly, the conversations that we would need to have, um, the communication skills would need to improve drastically. And so when we look at the communication skills between me and you having a conversation about these things is, different than you having a conversation with some of your family members or conservative Mm -hmm. uh, friends or other white people who have different perspectives, have Christian perspectives, but different perspectives on how things are going. It's just, we we are not communicating to understand each other. We're communicating just to talk. And so therefore, people that you're talking to who don't want to hear it are not listening to you. They're waiting for you to finish so they can hit their talking point. Yep. So they could be like, "Hey, here are the talking points that I've heard on my news, my I want to say news station, in my um, tunnel. You know, my my uh, group that just talks and thinks and looks like me. Here's what I heard, and here are our talking points. And let me go ahead and hit those so that I can, uh, you know, participate in this conversation and talk over you. <laughs> Communication is vastly, um, significantly uh, um, decomposed to the point where we're not." getting points across at all. Yeah. So we have to go, we're going to have to go way, way backwards, like children, to where uh, when you taught kids how to communicate effectively, I don't know, was that first or second grade, mm-hmm. when you get tired of them talking over each other and just, I mean, you can see that when you watch young kids in uh, Zoom now, in their um, online learning, they, you know, they just, they just talk over each other whenever they want to. And I'm like, yeah. that to me, looks like adults now. Yeah. So that's what we would need to do. <clears throat> and so, and I'm talking about scratch going from a, looking at it from a theological perspective or thus say, it, Lord did that, that scriptural stuff. We'll get to that. We have to get back to basics of communication, effective communication and acknowledgement that America uh, as a whole and the church as a whole has significant um, wounds that they've done to people of color and don't want to acknowledge, um, that it's even occurred. It's like more so of just get over it. It's not going to happen that we're past that.
0: Yeah. Um, you bring up something there. I wanted to get your thoughts on this as we close. Um, Mm -hmm. what do you say to the people in, and even on this side, people of color who, who cry victim, Mentality, And they say that, um, that this whole conversation that the systemic racism conversation, especially the white privilege conversation, like a, um, and I don't want to say anyone's name here, but you know, there's like a, a black figure that might step out into social media and say, we need to, and totally disagree with everything you just said and say, oh. this is a victim mentality. We don't need to support this, this Black Lives Matter movement. All these things that are happening are just weakening us. We don't need help, um, you know. Or I'm not even sure how to phrase the argument, but you know what I'm saying—that that, mm-hmm. that uh, crying racism mm-hmm. all the time only weakens us. Kind of mentality. What do you say mm-hmm. to people, especially people of color, who say that? Um, and. You know, because I know there are white people that say that, but when people mm-hmm. of color say that, white people for sure like to put them on their social feeds if they agree, and say see there are black people oh, too." Absolutely. you know I, so, I, but, so what do you say to yeah. that that argument that this is a victim mentality, and we need to you know move past that
3: well, it's interesting <laughs> um, <clears throat> if you so if, there's two ways I look at that the one way is. If you've ever looked at, um, well, first of all, I do understand why certain um, people would want to take um, Black uh, representatives Mm -hmm. (laughs) and say, okay, you guys are saying what we want to hear. So we're going to, we want to, we want to share you. Mm -hmm. So we've known that. We've known that. If I look at it from the Black, uh, from Black community, Black perspective, I look at it like this even in the days of slavery there was not all the slaves weren't united in terms of like we hate master or massa <laughs> we hate massa because you know he's beating us or slavery this and that there was field slaves and there was house slaves and field slaves you know were out and they they got the brunt of slavery and they had to deal with a lot of the Atrocities and horrors that we talked about, and they had their perspective on slavery, and they wanted it to end. House slave didn't. They were living in the house with massa, and they had a great experience. And so, if massa got sick, they would say, "Oh, massa, we sick." They identified with um, the the massa and the system and slavery as a whole, and it was not that bad. Mm. You know why y'all want to run away? we got it good here in the house. And so I understand that there are people who will have differing perspectives, even in a system or circumstance that doesn't help their community as a whole. That's fine. So that doesn't mean that they're going to be the prevailing voice for the community because if you look at house slave versus field slave, there might be 200, 300 field slaves and 10 house slaves. But if Massa is gonna pick somebody to speak on behalf of everybody, then picking a house slave to speak who looks like the rest of the community would be the one that you could give the talking points to, or would speak and say, hey, slavery's not that bad. Mm -hmm. You know, house is pretty cool. So I understand that, that's how how we look at it, and that's how a lot of times, uh, you know, we view certain things for people who are saying, the things that may not reflect the experiences of a whole because everybody black doesn't have the same experiences. there are some black people that have grown up differently and did not and ha- did not have the typical black experience mm-hmm. and don't want to don't want no parts of it don't and don't, and, and are cool with the fact that they've been accepted um, you know by uh, white society as one of them. They run that and they they're cool with that, until, yeah, they have a black experience where they get pulled over and the cop doesn't recognize you know them as being one uh you know one of them or whatever and then they're like oh my god you know now I understand yeah hey, and it is what it is
0: and illustrations of that I think I I can think of two that you might be discussing like, um the Tarantino film did in Django Un- Unchained this is Samuel L mm-hmm. Jackson's character versus Django. Um, And and how those experiences, why would Samuel L. Jackson's character fight against the freedom of, of, and destruction, a freedom of, of his, you know, his family there and, Mm -hmm. you know, the destruction of, um, what's his name? DiCaprio, the, the master. And Mm -hmm. the other modern example, I think of that, that we see is Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, where you've got Will and, and Carlton. And you Mm -hmm. see, you know, Carlton, one of the episodes I remember watching growing up on that show was when they were trying to pledge to the fraternity, Yep. you know, and, you know, that was, that was Carlton was out because he was too white, you know, and they had that, that big and will defended him. And, you know, so there's, there's always, you see that within the black community and they, in that, that, that show, that episode with not jokes, it was one of the few um they come home and uh james avery the late james avery who was uncle mm-hmm. phil um says i'm sorry that happened to you and he and he just looks and he goes when are we going to stop doing this to each other yep and they fade to Thank black you. no laughter it was like whoa exactly. something's going on there and and as a white guy i'm going holy crap that's serious, you know, like something's going on. I don't understand in that community. And I think, I think it kind of illustrates that point, maybe not perfectly, but just that there's with just like within white communities, you know, there's, mm-hmm. there's different experiences, different mi- mindsets, you know, that absolutely even right now, there are those that say we're not privileged. And there are those of us who are like, no, I totally recognize it. You know, that I totally get it. exactly. And so, exactly. So I think that, because we do tend to think of the black experience as a monolith that no. we don't think about that you know just like we've talked about in this election the latino vote the latino vote the latino vote and yeah. it's like there's a lot of different types of latinos <laughs> you know there's a lot of different types of black people there's there's a lot of different you know it's like it's funny to me in a weird kind of sad way that for myself and for many people who are white are kind of just waking up to this fact that there's, there's different, it's not one race because honestly with white people, I'll be, I'll be completely blunt here Uh, in my experience. And what I think is a shared experience of white people is, and and maybe one of the few we actually have is that we don't see ourselves as a people. We don't see ourselves as a group, a race. We see ourselves as a diverse people. Like mm-hmm. you're white, but you're Irish, you're German, you're, you know, native American, well, native American people of color, but you know what I'm saying? You're, right. We sure love to talk about how we're one eighth Nav- Navajo or whatever. And you know, like that's some kind <laughs> of like badge. Um, but still I think that there's a difference in how we view our own community um, as a diverse people that we don't typically yeah. see in us, as, as viewing people of color. And I think that uh, that's what's part of waking us up in, in this 2020 era of chaos is that um, these issues are, are waking us up to the fact that our view on just society is a little bit myopic. Oh, uh, very much
3: so. Yeah. Big um, condition though, Big condition, come, I think the American, the American culture has conditioned <clears throat> people uh, specifically white people because it's geared towards white people to um, think in that manner. And so that's, and now the, uh, the deconstruction of that is what's happening.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's painful for some, you know, because it's, Absolutely. You, you completely rock the boat, change their world, um, move pieces around on the board without their consent. And they're used to being able <laughs> to move those pieces at their will, you know, it's like, that's, yeah, it's a different world, man. 2020 is a a turning point of, of our society in America. And one of the reasons we keep telling churches that you're not going to go back to how it was. It's not just that we've had this huge online digital church push. It's that Mm -hmm. the reason we've had that and what's happened because of that has changed us and we are different. So, um, well, Jason, uh, we could talk for hours and hours, man. So uh, I really appreciate your your input, your insight, your friendship, um, and just being willing to <clears throat> have these really open and honest conversations here in public. And um, I think on the communication side of things, obviously, you know, your stuff, um, where can people find you if they want to connect?
3: Oh, absolutely. So on any platform at and um, so Facebook, Instagram, uh, Twitter, <clears throat> cool. I'm on all platforms. I actually talk back. So reach out. Yeah. Um, and I'm looking forward to continuing these, these type of conversations, whether it's church communications, whether it's racial reconciliation, or whether it's just, you know, we saw earlier video gaming, whatever. So we could talk about a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so if, uh, thank you guys for listening to the seminary of hard knocks podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode. Um, if you like what you hear today, or felt like it was helpful, please like, share, comment, and leave reviews wherever you get podcasts. And uh, I would appreciate it. All right, so thanks for listening to the Seminary of Hard Knocks. We'll be back later. See you.